Well, one of the things that uh, all of us... <clears throat> excuse me, here we go. One of the things that we all battle with in this life is understanding the fact that lower does not mean lesser. We drive by a field and we see some foreign workers out there in the hot sun and we conclude that these people are lesser than we are. We do. Indeed, these people are paid less than us, perhaps. They may not speak English very well. They may be living in a foreign land. But the conclusion does not follow that they are lesser than we are. I mean, hasn't someone said somewhere, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among them are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness? Didn't someone say that? Now, to be sure, some may be born into different economic situations and may be in lower economic status, but it doesn't mean that they are a lesser person. Not at all. Because lower doesn't mean lesser. If we could learn that lesson well, discrimination would be out the window. But the fact that it exists and is strong shows we don't know this. In the days of David, his countrymen expressed the same feelings. Samuel came to David's house to anoint the next king of Israel. And so Jesse had brought his sons there, and it was Eliab, the oldest of the sons of Jesse, who entered the room, and they all thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before Samuel. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or at the height of his statue, because I, God said, have rejected him. For God sees not as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So Jesse said, okay, well, let's try Abinadab. Passed before Samuel, and he said, the Lord has not chosen this one either. And then Jesse made Shammah pass by, and the Lord said, the Lord has not chosen this one either. Then Jesse made seven of his sons all pass before Samuel. But Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. And Samuel said to Jesse, are these all your children? And Jesse said, no, there remains one yet the youngest, but he is out tending sheep. You can almost hear the, the doubt in Jesse's voice. Well, there's one more child, but he's the youngest, and of course he's not here because he's not important. And I, have I thought that him to be king? I would have summoned him, certainly, but he's not the one. Uh, we've delegated him to the smallest role out there to shepherd the sheep. But all the important people are here. And Samuel says, no, you go, you go get him. It was David who had become the mighty king of Israel, thus teaching us that lower doesn't mean lesser. It's easy for many to think the same way of Jesus. By many outward appearances, His life was nothing special. He, he grew up as a laborer in an obscure village of Nazareth, north in Galilee, and who, who went then into itinerant preaching. But wasn't so successful at that. Even when He went to His hometown, preached his first sermon. He, he wasn't received well. <laughs> That's like a major understatement. In fact, he was kicked out of his synagogue and they attempted to kill him. Oh, Jesus did have some success with the multitudes at one point feeding 5,000 people. And he was so successful that people said they wanted to make him king. But as soon as they found out who the real Jesus was, they wanted nothing of it and left. Upon his death, 
Jesus had very little following, only 11 disciples and a few women. His death was terrible, executed by the Roman government, rejected by the religious establishment. He was put to death as an enemy of the state, died the worst death that any Jew could ever imagine upon a cross. It was written in Deuteronomy 21, verse 23, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And then the mockers of Christianity might say, well, what sort of religious leader is this Jesus that you follow? I mean, he died a defeated man. He died with only a few followers. And according to his own testimony, even God abandoned him. So why are, are so many of you following him today? He wasn't such a great man, was he? Well, those who say such things, they're mockers of the Christian faith, don't realize that lower doesn't mean what? Lesser. Well, if you haven't done so already, I invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Hebrews chapter 2. The lesson for us today is this, that lower doesn't mean lesser. To be clear, the, the writer to the Hebrews wasn't addressing the mocker of Christianity as much as he was addressing the doubter who was listening to the mocker. Remember, this book was written to Jews who had heard about Jesus and had embraced Him as their Messiah. They'd come into the church. They'd begun to experience its fellowship, its nice music, its, its, uh, the, the sweetness of the Word. They witnessed the power of God. They, they come to like these things, but they were in danger. They were in danger of drifting away from the Christian faith. They were in danger of drifting back in the Jewish religion of rituals. And one of the ways in which people were drifting were, was in regard to their view of Jesus. They, they began to think of Jesus as a mere man whom they saw Him to be. And, and certainly then less than angels. And so to help those who are drifting to remain secure in their faith, the writer of the book of Hebrews demonstrated in our text that Jesus is greater than angels. Oh, for a season he was lower, but that doesn't mean that he was lesser. Let me read Hebrews chapter 2, verses nine, 5 through 9. For he did not subject to angels the world to come concerning which we are speaking, but one has testified somewhere saying, What is man that you remember him, or the son of man that you are concerned about him? You have made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned Him with glory and honor and have appointed Him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under His feet. From subjecting all things to Him, He left nothing that is not subject to Him. But now, we do not yet see all things subjected to Him. But, we do see Him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God He might taste death for everyone. Now to understand these words, you need to go back to chapter 1, because this is really a continuation of the argument that the writer has. The argument is that Jesus is better than the angels. Verse 4 is the key. He has become as much better than the angels. Just that little phrase dominates the rest of chapter 1. It's all about this, that Jesus is the Son, but none of the angels are. Jesus is worshipped, but the angels are worshippers. Jesus is royalty, but the angels are merely part of His court that serve Him. Jesus is the eternal Creator, but the angels are a part of the creation. 
Jesus is the sovereign one, but angels are servants. See, Jesus is better than the angels. But the question comes up, how can He be better than angels when He died in such weakness? That's the question our text answers today. How can Jesus be better than angels, having lived as a man and having died as a criminal? I mean, angels are powerful and they are righteous and they never die. How could Jesus be better than these? Now before he addressed this issue, he took a parenthetical exhortation last week as we saw in chapter 2, verses 1-4, through which is the real danger of the hearers. And it's our danger too, that we just drift. We don't, we don't marvel any longer at the glories of Jesus. We've heard it in Sunday school. We've heard it in church. And we just, we just kind of drift from that. It's not as important. We're not convinced of the absolute greatness of Jesus Christ. And it, and it was kind of parenthetical. He stepped aside as he does sometimes, like I do from the, from the pulpit, and just exhorted the people, for this reason, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away from it. And then he came right back to his exhortation in chapter 2, verse 5. In fact, you could read right from chapter 1, verse 14 on to verse 5. It makes perfect sense. After saying in verse 13, To which of the angels did he ever say, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? He then says, Are they angels? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who inherit salvation? For he did not subject to angels the world to come concerning which we are speaking. But one has testified somewhere saying this. He could have just jumped right over that. The, the flow of thought is not interrupted in any way whatsoever. So he continues on with his argument. But there is a slight change. In chapter 1, we see the argument taken about the essence of Jesus. He's the Son. He's the King. He's the eternal, sovereign Creator who demands our worship. But in chapter 2, the writer's going to focus upon His incarnation. He's going to focus on His suffering. He's going to focus on His death. Because that's where someone might even argue that Jesus is lesser than angels. I mean, think about it. Angels are spiritual beings, whereas Jesus was a fleshly being. Angels are strong and mighty and powerful, but Jesus appeared to be weak and gentle of heart. He even said of himself, I'm meek. It's weak. But at the end of the day, they won't be the ones ruling the universe. No, that role is reserved for Jesus, who is better than angels. And one of the reasons He's better is my first point here, verses 5-8, through that Jesus is Lord of all. He is Lord of all. That's my, my first point. For He did not subject to angels the world to come concerning which we are speaking. Here the writer makes a simple declaration, the limited power of angels in the world to come. He didn't at all deny their power, didn't deny their righteousness, didn't deny their being. Rather, he addresses the future role of angels. And they will not be rulers. God will not subject the world to come to angels. And the reason is this, that God didn't create the world for angels to rule. Rather, God created the world for man to rule. And, particularly, God created Jesus Christ to rule the world as the perfect man, the Lord of all. And he backs this up. He backs up this assertion here by a, a reading of Scripture. He says in verse 6, But one has testified somewhere saying... Right, now you need, to, you need to catch this. One has testified somewhere saying... Did he forget? Did he forget 
who wrote it or where it was written? I say, no. He, he's writing, he's speaking to those who know their Bibles very well. These are Jewish people who knew the Old Testament Scriptures better than we know the New Testament oftentimes. Sadly. It's a bit like I said at the beginning of my message. Maybe you caught it, maybe not. I said, hasn't someone somewhere said, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal? Did I say that? I didn't reference it, and yet you all know. Who said that? Thomas Jefferson, perhaps, our founding fathers. And where did they say that? In the Declaration of Independence. I thought it was the Constitution until I studied this week. I'm not a good American. I don't know well enough. It's the Declaration of Independence right there, July 4th, 1776. That's what we celebrate every year. But we know that in the same way those who received this letter would have known. Who wrote, What is man that you remember him? Or the Son of Man that you are concerned about Him. You've made Him for a little while lower than the angels. You've crowned Him with glory and honor and have appointed Him over the works of your hands. You've put all things in subjection at His feet. So do you know who wrote this? Who wrote it, Rich? Who wrote it? Uh, Not Genesis. That's a good guess. Thanks for your boldness, I guess. Who wrote it? David wrote it. And where was it written down for us? Psalm 8. Now, some of you may have cheated and looked in the margin of your Bible. That's okay. But these Jewish people would have known that. Just, just right off there. It's a very well-known psalm. In fact, let's turn there. I want to spend a few moments here. I, I can't spend a lot here, but we will spend a few moments. It's a psalm you need to know. It's a worship psalm. It speaks of the, the great glory of God. And then he transitions, David does, into the, the wonders that, that God, being so great and mighty, would even care for us insignificant, small, puny, weak human beings. And though Psalm 8 speaks about the role of mankind, it does have a greater application to the role of the Son of Man as the greatest represent, representative of us. Psalm 8, verse 1. O Lord, O Lord, how majestic is Your name in all the earth. It talks about the majesty of God, the, the beauty of God, the wonder of God, the splendor of God. He says, how majestic is it on the earth. And he ends with that as well. Look at verse 9. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is Your name in all the earth. Top he begins with it. Bottom he ends with it. That's a pretty strong clue. This is probably the key to the psalm. You can see God's majesty in the earth. And it's not only microscopically, it's also macroscopically as well. Whatever we can see, it just speaks and proclaims the majesty of God. That's how he continues in verse 1. Who has displayed, who have displayed your splendor above the heavens. From the mouth of infants and nursing babes, from the weakest among us who are dependent upon us, nursing at a mother's breast, you have established strength because of your adversaries, to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. That, that God's splendor can be seen in the heavens, seen in the stars, and also can be seen in babies as God raises up from these little ones powerful warriors enough to thwart His enemies. And so in heaven above or on earth beneath, God's creation tells of His glory. And then verse 3, David begins to bring it from God's glory to us. And you can almost picture him out as a shepherd boy in the wilderness at night, looking up the stars and contemplating the universe, their stars would have been much more magnificent than we see with the light pollution all around us. He says, When I consider your heavens and the work of your fingers, almost as if all those stars was merely just the little work of God's 
fingers. It's not the, the work of his strength and his might. It is, as Job says, it's the fringes of his ways. Just all the heavens out there. When he, he looks at that, the moon and all the stars which you have ordained, in light of the incredible greatness of God, he says, Who are we? Verse 4, What is man that you take thought of him? and the Son of Man that you care for Him. This is what the writer of the Hebrews quotes. Who are we that, that God, your great and awesome mind, would set it upon us? I mean, too often we can just hear, oh, you know, Jesus loves you, and just take that for granted. And God loves you, and just realize, think that that's just natural. But it's not. If you think about the vastness of God and how small we are, the fact that He cares for us ought to be a tender hit a tender soft spot in your heart to realize what is, what are we that God cares for us? But this is the great realities of life, is that God cares for us. He's concerned for our welfare. He remembers us. But it even goes further than that. Not only has He cared for us, but He has given us honor. He's given us honor and glory. So it says here in verse 5, you've made Him a little lower than God. Okay, at this point we kind of need to step aside a little bit. I just want to address an issue here. Um, here in Hebrews, here, here, in, here in the Old Testament, we have him made him a little lower than God. In Hebrews, you remember what it said? You've made him for a little while lower than the angels. It's because of a difference in translation. The Hebrew text said you made him a little lower than God. The Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, from which the author of the Hebrews wrote, says angels, angelos, just a difficulty, a difference in translation. As a pastor, I'd rather you see these difficulties. What does it mean? Does it mean God or does it mean angels? In the New American Standard, even you have a note that helps you out. It says, might mean angels. Lower than God, lower than Elohim. Though Elohim, it's difficult to say that it speaks of angels. Though sometimes it speaks about mighty rulers. Maybe, maybe it does. I'd rather put these difficulties out there for you than to hear you, you experience them another place. And um, I bring them out also in, in chapter 1 we did. Lots of, lots of different kind of difficulties, textual. Just that's, that's how the Scripture puts together. But in some sense, whether it is God, whether it is angels, the reading is still the same. Then in creating man, He placed him on earth, making him lower than God and angels. The created world is a, a lower sphere than where God is in the heavens. And yet the remarkable thing, which is the point of the psalm, comes in verse 5 and 6. Yet you crown Him with glory and majesty. There's a glory and majesty that man has. The jewel of creation. You make Him to rule over the works of your hands. You've put all things under His feet. And though God created man lower than angels, they have a dignity above angels which the angels never had. We are those who rule over the creation. And you go back to Genesis chapter 1. Rich is probably why you thought it was Genesis. Because Genesis 1, Let us make man in our own image, according to our own likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Human de beings, indeed, are the crown of creation. We're created to be kings of the earth. And that's what David continues on with. Verse here in 7 and 8. You should have all things under your feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the paths of the sea, whatever walks or swims or flies or crawls upon the earth is to be under our rule because we're men. Now back in the book of Hebrews, why don't you turn back there now, 
We see the extent of the rule goes far beyond merely ruling over animals. It extends to all things. Look there at the, the last half of verse 8, which is really commentary on Psalm 8. He says, For in subjecting all things to Him, He left nothing that is not subject to Him. But now we do not yet see all things subjected to Him. And it's right here where you see the tension of the application of these verses. Are these verses addressing Jesus? Are these verses addressing mankind in general? Because certainly Psalm 8 addresses mankind in general, but how is it here? It seems like here he's applying it to Jesus. And as I studied this week, I saw that about the commentary split right down the middle. Half of them believe one way, is believing it, uh, talking about Jesus, and half of them said, no, it's just talking about man. So you say, which is right? I think both of them are right. Okay? Don't worry, don't worry. I know that you children who are being trained in your homeschool by your excellent teachers whom you love greatly um, are being taught that's postmodernism. You can't hold two truths at the same time. Well, here's, here's what it is. I think that they're both true in the sense that um, this passage is functioning exactly like the passages dealt with in chapter 1. In chapter 1, there, there are many passages which have an initial reference to a man perhaps to Solomon or perhaps to a, a king. And yet, as you realize the greater context, you realize, hey, well, this is talking about a Messiah. And so, in Solomon in one sense, but really the Messiah in another sense. Because that's what it says in chapter, five, or chapter 1, verse 5b. That's that. And even the throne just speaks about the earthly king, but having a reference then to the messianic king. So I think this is dealing the same way that, that here is man, it's talking about man, but, but in a greater way it's talking about the perfect man. Because man was created to rule the creation and in some measure we've messed it up. We have messed it up. Adam and Eve fell into sin, bringing the world into sin, subjecting the entire world to futility. G.K. Chesterton once said, whatever else is or is not true, this one thing is certain. He said, man is not what he was meant to be. Isn't that true? Instead of having the mastery, he's mastered. Instead of ruling, he's enslaved. Instead of being characterized by strength, he's characterized by weakness. Instead of being an ally of the Lord God, subject to Him, the Scriptures tell us, he's a rebel against God. Instead of being characterized by glory, he's characterized by shame. That's Chesterton. But the hope of the Scripture is this, that someday the, the creation will know its freedom from its slavery, and that freedom comes through Jesus Christ, the perfect man who rules over all perfectly. And so I think that's the call here of verse 8. Taking Psalm 8 and saying, you know what, it, it is speaking about Jesus. In subjecting all things to Him, He left nothing that is not subject to Him. See, there's nothing that's not subject to the perfect man. There's nothing. But the reality, though, is the last half of verse 8, we do not yet see all things subjected to Him. So there's some things not yet subjected to Jesus Christ. Yes, He is Lord of all. But there's some things not subjected to Him. And so we live in this age in attention. Yes, Jesus is Lord of all. And yes, He sits on His throne. Verse 8. But there's a tension between what's now and and what will be because there's some things that aren't subjected to Him. So I, I just, just say this. Do you know some things not subjected to Christ right now? Can you think of any? Nathan, you can't think of anything? Okay, that's good. 
What's that subject to Christ? Maybe I need to tell you the answer. But, but I forgot. I, yes, Caleb, what? Nothing? Well, someday everything will be subjected to him. But it says here in verse 8, we do not yet see all things subjected to him. So there is something that isn't subjected to him. Right? I appreciate your willingness to try. What isn't? A couple things. A rebellious sinner. Those who hold their fist at God isn't subject to him fully. Because he hasn't squashed him yet. He's not bowing the knee to Jesus. Satan himself isn't bowing to Jesus, isn't subjected to him right now, is he? No. Jesus certainly has sovereignty over that. But there's one thing even more glaring that has not yet been subjected to Jesus. It is death. It is death. Listen to 1 Corinthians 15, 25-27. For Jesus must reign until He has put all His enemies under His feet. And the last enemy that will be abolished is death. For He has put all things in subjection under His feet. So what's not subject to Christ? Death isn't. We still die. In fact, that's the issue He addresses here in verse 9. It's the issue of death. But we do not... Though all things are not subject to Him, we do see Him, verse 9, who was made for a little while lower than the angels, but lower is not lesser, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God He might taste death for everyone. He might taste death for everyone. That He might conquer death. We see right here in Hebrews the first time the death of Jesus is mentioned. Until this point, he's been writing only about the, the sovereign, glorious, and exalted Jesus. But now, he writes about his death. The very thing that people might say, well, he died. He can't be greater than, than angels. But he does so. He writes about death in a way that we see the glories of the death of Jesus. Now, death is not a glorious thing. I attended a funeral yesterday for Julie's grandparents. Julie's not here. She stepped out. Mike, maybe she's in the back room. Um, the realities of life and death are painful. And there's nothing particularly glorious about death. But the book of Hebrews does speak of the glories of the death of Jesus. Beginning right here. Look at this. Not only is Jesus Lord of all, my second point, verse 9, we see that Jesus became lower than all to defeat that last enemy, death. You can see that phrase right there in the beginning of verse 9. We do see Him who was made for a little while lower than the angels. This verse is talking about the incarnation when He became a man, right? That's what Psalm 8 speaks about, that, that you have made man a little lower than the angels. Uh, a little less means we put on flesh and blood. But if you look a little bit more close, closely, you see it's not only talking about, verse 9, the incarnation, it's also talking about Calvary. It's talking about the death of Jesus. It's talking about the cross. Look at verse 9. We do see Him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death. His death is described here as a suffering death. Jesus didn't die by lethal injection with no pain. No, He died with great pain and suffering, which dying upon the cross brings. In fact, the, the cross was so terrible to the, the Greek people, the Roman people, that they could not utter that word. Couldn't say death or cross. Could never be applied to a Roman citizen. 
So terrible was the word and the punishment. It was designed to inflict the greatest suffering possible as you drown slowly upon the cross. And Jesus suffered greatly. His death today be labeled cruel and unusual punishment. But the writer here just puts it as the suffering of death. Listen, but, but it was the lower aspect of Jesus. It was coming down that was the very means by which He conquered and became greater than the angels. Look right there in verse 9. It says, Because of the suffering of death is He crowned with glory and honor. It's precisely because He became low that God lifted Him high and gave Him glory and honor. This is the paradox of the Christian life, right? The way up is down. And the path to greatness is along the road to service. And we gain our lives by losing our lives. And death is the way to life. In the case of Jesus here, the cross was the way to the crown. And there we see that lower doesn't mean lesser. So don't drift from your faith. That, that, that's where this is coming from. Don't drift from your faith. Don't drift because Jesus appears lowly as a man who died weakly upon the cross. You know, that's why it's shameful in, in churches, Catholic churches particularly, that have Jesus dying upon the cross. you ever seen what Jesus looks like upon the cross? He's sitting there, he looks like pale and <clears throat> weak. But that's not where Jesus is now. Oh, sure enough, he looked like that on the earth. But that's not what he looks like now. He's triumphing in power. He's crowned with glory and honor. But his path of humility became the path of his exaltations. In fact, even we see it in Hebrews. Several times it's mentioned about Jesus sitting at the right hand of God. Um, and more often than not, it's linked to His death. That's my point here. It was the death, it was becoming low, that gave Him reason, the purpose why God exalts Him. Chapter 1, verse 3. When He had made purifications of sins, right, and that includes Calvary and the cross, when he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Or chapter 10, verse 12. Jesus, having offered one sacrifice for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, exalted up there after the sacrifice. Or Hebrews 12, 2. Jesus endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. The cross and the shame... It was because of that, through that, that he sat down at the right hand of God. The tie is strong because his, his death was the means of his exaltation. In fact, nowhere is it said more clearly than Paul did in Philippians chapter 2. He said, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, for this reason, Paul writes in chapter 2, verse 9 of Philippians, for this reason God also highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are on heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Paul clearly comments in Ephesians 2, Philippians 2, Connecting the death of Jesus with the exaltation of Jesus. It's the suffering of death, the suffering of the humility, even death on the cross, that was the very reason why He was so high and lofty and exalted. So don't ever think that lower is lesser. Because in the case of Jesus, lower became the means by which He was the greater. 
And He ascended higher than all because He was lower than all, as I've said in my second point. And I say lower than all specifically because we read here in verse 9, He tasted death for everyone. To taste something is to experience it. To feel it. And here, the great reality, this is the great reality of the Gospel, right? That Jesus has experienced death for every one of us here who believe. He's experienced it for us. So you can just go around the room. See, Jesus experienced, He's tasted death for us. So it's Michelle. Jesus has tasted death for you. Carrie, Jesus has tasted death for you. Jennifer, Jesus had tasted death for you. Karen, Jesus has tasted death for you. For everyone, Jesus tasted this death. Even John and Mary, even Goline, Jesus tasted death for you. In fact, think about this. There's nobody in heaven who will ever be able to claim that they sank lower than Jesus. Because Jesus sank so low that He's the one that tasted death for us. So we might be raised. His earthly suffering was far greater than any of us will ever experience. All of us will die once. If you're unbelieving, you'll die twice. Once now and then the second death. But we who believe will die once. But Jesus, think of the deaths He died on the cross. Millions, billions of deaths He died on the cross. And, and, and beyond that, not only did He die, He bore the wrath of God in our place. You know, we have a great privileged position that we know nothing of the wrath of God because He took it all upon Himself. Oh, certainly we know the anger of God and our sin and we can face that, but we know nothing about the outpouring of the wrath of God upon us because Jesus took that upon Himself, tasting death for everyone. But perhaps the greatest words of verse 9 come towards the end of the verse where it says, is by the grace of God that He tasted death for us. See, the great reality of the Gospels is that we're saved by God's grace. It's not by our acts of righteousness. It's not because of merits. Because were the truth known, we're nobodies. Isn't that what Psalm 8 teaches? What is man that you would care for him? See, there's nothing in us that commends us to God. Everything we have, as John, you quoted in the concert the other night, what, what do we have but that we haven't first received? Everything we have, life and breath and all things, come from God. Yet why would, come, why would God come and taste death for us? You know why? Because He wanted to show off His grace. That's why. He wanted to show forth the wonders of His grace. And that's what makes our salvation so great, that it is by grace. He's given it to us, and it's ours to possess merely by faith, by looking to Jesus. In fact, we see that right there. The way to possess it comes in chapter 2, verse 9. Skip by this little phrase, but I want to end here. I want to really camp on this. In verse 8, it says this, we see that all things are not subjected to Jesus. And I believe that all of us can see this. We, you open your newspaper and you can see there's lots of things that are not subject to Jesus. You can look around you and see the pain and struggle in people's lives and you say all things are not subject to Jesus because this creation, there's something dreadfully wrong about this creation. You feel the hurt of people and you say something's wrong because people hurt each other. 
Families are unreconciled. Divorces take place. Immorality. People are hurt. People hurt other people. And you see that. And you feel that. And there's plenty of things around us that that we all can see that there's lots here that's not subjected to Jesus. We can see that. But here's the question for you from verse 9. Do you see Jesus? It says in here, but we do see Him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus. Because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God He might taste death for everyone. Do you see Him? You see the suffering around you. Do you see Jesus? Do you see the suffering one? Do you see the one who tasted death for you? Do you see the lower one? See, our faith is in Jesus Christ. And our faith is in the lower one who is crowned with glory and honor. And fundamentally, bottom line, you say, how how is it we believe? We believe by seeing Jesus and by just looking to Him and saying, yes, He's the one who's solved the problems. He's the one who will solve the problems through His death. And, And my exhortation, my final exhortation to you all is this. Chapter 2, verse 3. Don't neglect so great a salvation. I've reflected here upon Christ and all that He is and all He's done by His grace for us, tasting death for us, experiencing the wrath of God for us, being crowned with glory and honor. Don't neglect that great salvation which is ours, given to us by grace, through faith, by merely looking to Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, I pray in all that we would do, may we look to Him. May He be our our crown and our joy. Um, I I pray, Lord, that You would teach us this morning really what it is that was meant by Him tasting death for us. He died in our place. He died instead of us. May it stir us to consider Him, not neglect Him, but cling to Him. Oh God, may may we rest in Him as the boat that's going upstream that's helping us along. Lord, may You be all in all in our hearts. You who are the Lord of all, thank You that You became lower than all for us to help us in our sin. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. John and Mary have one last song they'd like to sing. Maybe just keep the pulpit here. I'm not sure. We just... It'll work.